Our text for today is from Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. morning, everyone. How's it going? Good to see you here this morning. Um, if you are new to us, we have been walking through the book of Judges. We just finished a couple of weeks ago, and all of the redemption churches throughout the state of Arizona all go through the same text throughout the year. And so we spent seven weeks in the book of Judges, really um, looking at it from a pretty high view, since it's 21 chapters and only seven weeks, trying to figure out what is God saying to us about not um, having things right in our own eyes and trusting him to be our king. So we took seven weeks in Judges, and then every congregation is taking four weeks to do whatever they want in their own context before Easter, and then we'll jump into the book of Titus, uh, which is in the New Testament, a, a letter written from Paul to Titus, and we'll spend an extended amount of time in Titus, which is funny because it's only three chapters, but we'll be able to slow down and really soak in Um, what the Bible is saying in that book. So what we decided as a team for our context is really we wanted to talk about what does it look like to have essential rhythms in the Christian life. That as you follow Jesus, there should be these things that happen, that, that there's these rhythms that just will naturally come into your life. And we talked about celebration and remembering. We did that actually on the year service that we've been meeting in this building a couple of weeks ago. We baptized people, and we remembered, and we celebrated what God is doing. And then last week, Sean talked about mission out of the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, that really it's not about going and doing mission, but it's about as you are going, like you're already going, now disciple people along the way. Teach them, baptize them, in every way. That is a natural rhythm that if you've been a Christian for a while, that should start to happen in your life, that you're on mission all the time. Today, we're going to talk about prayer. I'll get into a minute. And then next week, Sean is going to talk about the Bible. What is the rhythm of the Christian life of reading the Bible? And really, all these rhythms are essential to following Jesus because if we're not intentional to exercise them, Because of our fast-paced culture, our non-stop culture, if we don't stop to recognize them and practice them, we'll really miss out on the growth and connection in our relationship with God. And so we have to stop for a second. Okay, are we doing these rhythms? Are they a natural part of our everyday life if we follow Jesus? And when I say prayer, we're going to talk about prayer today, right? So Sean said, hey, can you preach on this day? And it's prayer. Like, okay, that's not broad enough as a category, right? Like, I, what, there's multiple different directions I could go with how to pray, what is praying, who do you pray to, what does that mean? Um, and when I say prayer, I'm talking about our personal communication with God. Our personal communication with God. It could be a request for ourselves or others. That's classified as petition or intercession. It could be confession of sins, adoration, praise or thanksgiving. Those are all under the umbrella of prayer. 
And what I'm not going to do today is talk about how to pray, um, and I'm not really going to talk about who to pray to. Um, I'm going to focus specifically on why do you pray, and even more specifically on why, why don't you pray? Like in my own life, as I'm thinking about this topic and going, okay, like, well, why, why don't I pray if it's, if it's really good for me? And so that's kind of where we're going to go. We're going to be jumping quite a bit into quite a few different texts in the Bible, but I want to anchor our time in Colossians that we just read, Colossians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can pull it out to Colossians chapter 4, and I'm really going to focus really only on verse 2, a little bit in verse 3. And I think that's just a, a really, really essential question to, to ask ourselves is why do we pray? We had a leadership meeting, not a leadership meeting, it was a, a membership meeting last week. So last Saturday, we've been talking about membership in the body here that we're going to actually start doing membership to see like who, who really wants to be a member, who's committed to Redemption Peoria. And we had a class to answer any questions that somebody might have about what it means to be a member. And so we go through this long packet. We were in uh, the Ellis's living room and kitchen. It's about 25 people. And the middle of the packet, it's pretty theologically dense. So we're talking about Reformed theology and God's sovereignty, how he's in control of all things. And Elaine Weekly raised her hand in the middle of this time. And she said, I understand that God's in control. And I'm trying to wrap my head around this. But if that's the case, why do we pray? Like, if God knows everything and he's in control, like, why, why, why do we pray? I thought it was a great question. I think it's a question we ask ourselves a lot. And I love how Wayne Grudem, who he actually um, is a professor at Phoenix Seminary, he wrote the book Systematic Theology, which is a pretty standard textbook for theology. He answers this question, why do we pray? This is what he says. He says, God wants us to pray because prayer expresses our trust in God, and is a means whereby our trust in Him can increase. In fact, perhaps the primary emphasis of the Bible's teaching on prayer is that we are to pray with faith, which means trust or dependence on God. Did you hear that? He said that God wants us to pray because prayer ex uh, expresses our trust in God and is a means whereby our trust in Him can increase. Do you need your trust in God to increase? Do you really believe and trust God with every aspect of your life? Because if you're like me, sometimes I feel like the, the Spirit is kind of nudging me to do something or say one thing, and I'm kind of like, I don't, God, I don't think you heard that right. Because like, if you want me to talk to that person, that's not really going to go very well. Or if you want me to say this to them at this time, like, I, I might, God, you might be missing the, the memo here, like, I, do I really trust God with every single thing in my life? Am I open-handed in every area? I'm not. I need to be, right? And prayer is actually the exercise that increases the muscle of my trust in God. And so that's why we pray. We don't pray to kind of twist God's arm to do what we want Him to do. Prayer is more about shaping us. It's more about changing my heart to reflect his. Kierkegaard says it this way, the philosopher, he says, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. 
prayer should be about changing me, not about me trying to change God. And perhaps the greatest spiritual struggle in my life and in your life, what the enemy will try to do is get you to a place of self-sufficiency. Get you to a place where you don't have to rely on God. You don't need to exercise that faith muscle. No, you can do it on your own. In our redemption community, we've been spending some time in Galatians, and we were just in Galatians 3 a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about verse 3 of Galatians 3. We talked about you're, you're foolish. After beginning in the Spirit, now you're trying to make your way through the flesh. That's the dangerous thing in the Christian life. You can start to understand the rhythms and what it looks like, and then you can just start operating on your own self-sufficiency. And we need prayer to bring us back to understanding we can't do it on our own. God doesn't desire for us to live life on our own. And too many Christians I know function out of competency rather than divine connectedness. Think about your day and what you do moment by moment. Do you trust in your own abilities or are you trusting God moment by moment? God, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to interact? Because I know for me, it's really hard just to begin to trust in my own efforts. Right? We sang that song, um, the second song this morning, Lord, I need you. And that line in the, the, I think it's the second stanza verse. I don't don't know music. It's in there. After you kind of sing the chorus, that talks about my one defense, my righteousness. You know that line? I don't believe that line. God, you're my one defense. You are my righteousness. No, 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 no. Like, I believe that for salvation, but my, my righteousness is because I read the Bible, because I talk to people about Jesus, because I do the right thing. I love my wife. Like, my righteousness needs to only be in Christ. That is convicting for me to sing those words and to ask God to change my heart. I pray that would be true. You would be my one defense. I wouldn't try to defend myself, explain myself. It's only the cross that I stand on. For my defense and my righteousness, we fall into this idea of self-sufficiency, and we need prayer to align us back to the cross and back to God. And so if God commands us to pray, and prayer is beneficial for our soul, then why don't we do it? That's what I want to focus on for the rest of the time. Like, What's the problem? Like, Why don't I pray all the time? Let's look at Colossians chapter 4. Starting in verse 2, if you have it in front of you, read with me. Paul says this, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I want to pull out two specific aspects of this verse and the the second verse and how they are tethered together in prayer of why don't we pray? What, What is Paul 
exhorting us to do in our prayer. And the first thing is discipline. First word is discipline. The second word is vision. Discipline and vision will help us understand how to pray more effectively and be more connected to God. The first this we see it in Colossians, continue steadfastly in prayer. The word in the original language in Greek, steadfastly, means consistently showing strength which prevails in spite of difficulties, to endure, to remain firm, staying in a fixed direction, steadfastly, discipline. What are you disciplined in in your life? What are the things you're devoted to? That even if they're distracted, no, I'm going to go here. Even if there's things distracting me, I'm going to see it all the way through. And we all have different levels of discipline, but don't say, oh, I'm just not a disciplined person. You You can't say that. That's not an excuse, right? Because you all exercise discipline even this morning when you got dressed. You put on clothes. You exercise a rhythm of discipline. You put food in your body because you knew if you didn't do that, that would probably not be good for any of us, right? So you exercise discipline in doing that. So don't tell me you can't be disciplined. You can. What are the things you're really disciplined in life about? Paul says it needs to be prayer. You need to be disciplined in prayer. Be steadfast, continuing in your prayer life. Do you take prayer seriously as a discipline? Or is it just kind of, ah, when I need something, oh, no, be intentional to be disciplined in your prayer. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he's an author, and uh, he writes a book called Prayer. That's the title of the book. It's a really good book. I'd encourage you to read it if you're interested in this subject. But he talks about prayer in the, in the introduction and in the first chapter. And he talks specifically about this issue of discipline and the context of um, this shift in his Christianity he writes about how 9-11 had just happened. He's in New York City, in Manhattan. I can't imagine what it was like there as a pastor. Not only that, but his wife is struggling with Crohn's disease, and he gets diagnosed with thyroid cancer, right, all at the same time. And so he talks about in his book that his wife actually encourages him to do something that they've never had the discipline to do in their marriage consistently. She says, Tim, we need to pray Every night. Every night we need to pray. Listen to how he writes about um, an illustration that she used that, that really crystallized this discipline in their marriage and in their prayer life. She said this to him. She said, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before you go to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to do it every night? It would be so crucial that you would never forget. You would never miss taking that pill. And she says to her husband, well, if we don't pray together to God, I'm not going to make it because of all we're facing. She says, we have to pray We can't let it just slip our minds. And they begin to pray every night. Even when he's in a different country or a different state, he'll call and they'll pray 
every night together. They're disciplined. They're serious about it. It's not just, ah. And it's really, really hard to do to be disciplined because other things flood into your time and your efforts. Are you being disciplined in your prayer? And I would say, as Paul asks us to be disciplined, continue steadfast in prayer, I would say that all disciplined in any venue is cultivated by vision. Discipline is cultivated by vision. If you don't have discipline, it's probably because you don't have vision. Right? If you don't have discipline, it's probably because you don't have vision. So what do I mean by vision, specifically in this text in Colossians? Again, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What does Paul mean when he says be watchful in prayer? And how is that connected with vision? When you do a study on the word watch or watchful in the New Testament, it's typically used um, in eschatology. And that's a fancy word for the, the study of the end time. So when Jesus is talking, he says there's going to be a man in a field, two men in a field. One's going to go and one's going to stay. And then he says, watch, so watch and pray. When you see it show up, Watch is like, listen, this is really, 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 really important. And Paul is exhorting us being watchful in prayer means you don't have both eyes on the present. You have one eye on the future to eternity and one eye in the present. To be watchful with your vision is extremely important in your prayer. Because you'll just forget. You forget that we're in a spiritual battle if you're not watchful, if you don't have vision and prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about this war that we're in. He reminds the people that they are in a spiritual battle, which we so easily forget. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's reminding them to have vision, have one eye on eternity. It's not just about what's happening here and now. You need to have one eye eternally and one eye on the present when you pray. And then he goes through the spiritual armor, put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. He's describing these different pieces that we use in the spiritual battle that we're a part of. And then he says this as he finishes giving all of those pieces of the armor in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all Perseverance. Perseverance? Is that how you say that? What? Perseverance. Brain is gone. I'm sorry. So he says, keep alert with all perseverance. Right? That's the vision. Keep alert. Keep watchful. See what's happening. And then you need to be disciplined in that. And just like Ephesians, Colossians, the, the text we're looking at in chapter 4 is one of the prison epistles, right? Paul is writing this as he's locked up, he's chained up, he's writing from a prison. 
And he wrote this to the church. And verse 3 in Colossians chapter 4 is really interesting to me. Look at, look at what he says. He says, open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. What is Paul doing in this moment? He's having one eye on eternity and one eye in the present. If you're in prison and you have an opportunity to pray, what are you probably praying? God, get me out of prison. Think of Paul. He's thinking, man, I could do so much work for the gospel if I'm out, but now I'm locked in prison. God, would you release? And this has happened before, right? In Acts, we see this. There's an earthquake, and the the doors open, and they walk out, but Paul doesn't pray this. He says, God, open a door for the gospel. This is more important than my circumstances. My time here. I'm, I'm thinking about eternity. And it shows us a mature way to pray. When you pray, take an honest inventory of yourself. When you pray, are you praying for God to change your circumstances? And that's all you pray. God, I want to graduate. God, I, I, I want to sing it together. God, um, I need more money. God, would you change this situation? Like, I don't think it's wrong to pray for circumstances, but are you, are you only having two eyes set on what's right in front of you? Are you having one eye set in eternity? And because of that, you're having one eye set in your circumstances. God, or Paul, Paul does not ask for God to change his circumstances which is crazy to me. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. Paul writes this, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches and glorious inheritance of the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? This is one of the introductions to the letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul gives. And he gives these introductions in almost every letter that he writes in the New Testament. And I have not found once where he prays for the people's circumstances to change. He just doesn't do it. What is he praying here for the people? He's praying, God, would you enlighten their hearts? Would you help them see you have a clear vision of you? Because if you have a clear vision of God, you can walk through those hard circumstances. I have a friend that when he was 16, he was arrested for murder, wrongly accused. He grew up in a gang neighborhood, and somebody had said, oh, I think it was him, and it was terrible evidence, and he, he turns 36 in a couple weeks. He's still in prison, 20 years, wrongfully accused. They just reopened his case because they found new evidence that it's probably not going to be him. And I pray for him almost every morning. And I started changing what I was praying. Because when I first encountered him and we began a relationship, I was praying, God, get him out of there, man. This is ridiculous. He, it's not, he didn't even do it. 
And now my prayer has begun to change more like Paul's to say, God, would you change his heart? And he's a believer. He loves Jesus. God, would you mold him? Would you shape him in this time? And God, if it's your will, let him out. But, but change him, shape him, meet him in that need. Be rich to him. We need to have vision in our prayers. And that's going to give us discipline to move forward. And Paul is convinced, as he writes to the church in Ephesus, that this life is not all there is. I, maybe you need to be reminded of that. I need to constantly be reminded of that. Do you know that this life is not all there is? Do you remember that? That there's going to be something after this life. And what we do in this life will change the next life. That we have an opportunity to invest, to know God. And one day it's all going to be restored because of what Jesus has done on the cross and Him coming back. Man, if we remember that, if I had a clear vision of that, I would pray all the time. I'd be focused, I'd be disciplined in my prayer. Asking God to change me and others I interact with on a constant basis. You need to have not both eyes on this life when you pray, but one eye on eternity and one eye on this life. So why don't we continue steadfastly in prayer? Again, I think we don't, we're not disciplined in prayer. We don't continue steadfastly in it because we have a cloudy vision cloudy vision of who Jesus is. And so if our vision is cloudy, how do we get a clear vision of Jesus so that we can maximize our prayer experience? Let me give you two quick things. The first thing is God's Spirit. To get a clear vision of Jesus, you need to ask God to show himself to you. Right? Without God's Spirit changing you from the inside out, we're just blinded. God's Spirit has to engage us. This is not us pulling ourselves up by a bootstraps, being more disciplined in prayer without engaging God's Spirit. Because the religious leaders did that. They were the Pharisees. They did all these rules and all these laws apart from God and engaging God, and it became ritual. And Jesus just called them out time and time again. You're whitewashed tombs. So we need God's Spirit to change us. We need to ask Him to change us. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to commit to community. Right? We talk about community all the time in this church, not because we want big communities or multiplying communities. We want communities because God set us up to do this life together. And I need to be reminded every week, every Tuesday, I need to be reminded that there's another life. It's not just about here and now. And so I need to force myself into meeting on Sundays, into meeting on Tuesdays, so that I'm reminded, hey, don't forget. Don't forget there's more than just this life. We need to be in community with people to get a clear vision and a reminder of that truth. Otherwise, we're going to forget. Here's how Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, talks about this issue of community and discipline and vision. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Therefore, well, let me back it up because anytime you read therefore, you got to find out what therefore is therefore. Right, Sean talked about that last week, which is true if you were listening. Um, so Hebrews chapter 11, it's the 
known as the Hall of Faith. It's all these great people that have trusted God, and they're not perfect. They're messed up. We saw that in Judges, and there's even some of them in Judges. But God says, listen, there's moments where they trusted me by faith, and I showed up. And because of that, they're counted worthy. It's this Hall of Faith of all these people that have trusted God in moments. And then... The author says, because of that, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, see the community part there? right? We're surrounded by this group of people, whether they're alive or not, that you're not meant to do this on your own. You need to be surrounded by people to be reminded of who Jesus is. Since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, here comes the discipline. Let us also lay aside every sin which so clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You're going to get things that are going to crowd in your way and cling to you. Don't let those things take you down. Stay focused. Stay disciplined in your prayer in the midst of community. And then here comes the vision. Why can you stay disciplined? Because of this looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's the vision. Jesus is the vision. The Christian life is hard because people are sinful. I'm sinful. It's broken. Even in the church, there's hard conversations that you have to have with people. There's misunderstandings and miscommunications. And why did you say that? And I thought you said this because it's really, really hard. And if we take our focus off of Jesus, it's going to get really hard to be disciplined. But if we keep our focus on Christ, we can run the race because of what he's done. And then I love the end of the passage at the end of verse 3. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's good for me to hear because I grow pretty weary pretty quick. I grow faint-hearted, and I'm like, man, this, I, I don't know, man. I don't know about this Christian thing. <laughs> Seriously. I grow weary. And I love how Jesus encourages his followers in Luke chapter 18. He tells them this story about growing weary and being tired. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 18. He says, he told them this parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. I was reading my personal devotion at the time a couple of years ago, and, and I was supposed to read, I don't know, a chapter or something in, in 18. I just stopped in verse 1. Just stopped me right in my tracks. And I read it again. He told them this parable to the effect that they always pray and not lose heart. Man, I need to be reminded of that because I lose heart. I want to stop praying. I want to just coast. No, don't coast in the Christian life. Don't lose hearts. Listen to what he says in this parable. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. While he refused, But afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on earth. And so Jesus is saying, listen, do you, I mean, do you ever have those prayers that, like, I've been praying for 15 years. I've been praying for this person for 15 years. I'm just tired. I don't want to pray anymore. I feel like, what's the point? And God says, no. Jesus says, keep praying. Keep praying. I'm a good God. I will take care of you. I'm not like this judge that's corrupt. Like, like he even gives her what she wants. Listen, I'm going to take care of you. Keep praying. Don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep building that faith muscle. I need that encouragement in my prayers. Because it's real easy to lose heart. And that's some of the reason that I don't pray. I get tired and I get weary. And I think it doesn't matter. And Jesus is saying, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Keep one eye on eternity. There's more to this life than your circumstances. Be reminded of that as you pray. And if both my eyes are focused on this life, my vision it becomes cloudy. I forget who I am in Christ. I forget what God has done for me. And there's a certain vulnerability in prayer. In asking anything, there's a level of vulnerability. Right? And to be honest with myself, the real reason I don't pray, pride is one reason. I think I'm self-sufficient, which we talked about before. And the other reason is, like, I'm really scared to become vulnerable. To become open. Because what if I'm vulnerable and what if I step out and it doesn't work out? Because that's actually happened to me multiple times in my life with people that are broken. I've been vulnerable. I've been rejected. I've been betrayed. And so that carries over to my relationship with God. So now I don't want to step out and ask God anything. Because I'm worried. What if he rejects me? What if he abandons me? And so it's easier just to kind of lay back and not really pray and kind of, because I, I don't want to take the risk of getting hurt. And God's spirit continues to shape and mold me as he's teaching me that in my most vulnerable, messy, broken state, I can still go to him. Because of the cross. And when you look at Jesus' life as he's ending his life, think about what happened to Jesus as he's going to the cross from others, his followers, his friends. He's misunderstood. He's betrayed. He's denied. He's beaten. He's naked. He's abandoned by his friends. And he's all alone on the cross. And he's actually still functioning because he's tethered to the Father, right? Like he has such a deep, intimate relationship with the Father, he can still go through that as painful as it is. But then what happens? Right, we read it at the end of the Gospels. We see it, Jesus on the cross in the sixth hour, and the sky goes black. And in the ninth hour, the Father abandons the son 
right? And Jesus says this, catch this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is really important. Listen to this. This is really important. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus addresses God not as the Father. Because do you see what happened? Do you see what happened in this moment? In this moment, Jesus says, yes, I'm going to take all the sin of every single person on myself. So because of my sin, I am abandoned from God the Father. I am separated from God the Father. And Jesus steps in. And 2 Corinthians says, he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God. Right, So Jesus steps in in this moment. He takes my abandonment, my shame, my risk, and puts it on his own shoulders. And because of that, the father turns his head. And that's the worst pain for Jesus out of everything. Yes, everything else is painful. Bodily, he felt everything. The whips, the punches, the spit, the rejection from his friends, the denial from Peter feels all of it, but abandoned from the Father. That's the worst pain there is. And he does it so that I am not abandoned from the Father. In my worst state, in my messiest state, in my most broken state, the Father looks at me and he sees the work of Christ on the cross. And he says, come. You don't have to turn the other way. Do you get that? Like, do you see how that changes my prayer life? If I really believe that, and I'm not cloudy in my vision of Jesus, that God the Father, in all my shame and brokenness, still says, come. Like the Father running out to his son, his wayward son. He says, come. It's only because of the cross that I have access to the Father. If you're in this room and you haven't made a decision for Jesus, you don't have that access you are still separated from God. But if you have made that decision to trust Jesus, you can go to him whenever. So I can be vulnerable. He's not going to leave me. He's not going to forsake me, even in the midst of my brokenness. That's a vision that changes the way we pray. It should motivate us to run to God in the midst of our brokenness, right? Repentance. Repentance seems so, like I'm such a works-based performer, right? So repentance feels like I failed because I failed, like I did something wrong and I failed and I want to actually run the other way. And repent, the beautiful thing about repentance is no, because of the cross, I can move towards Jesus in freedom. Listen to how the author of Hebrews says it as we kind of wrap up here. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That is beautiful, 
that will cause me to be disciplined in my prayer as I have vision for what Jesus has done for me and through that who I am in him. May we commit to a community that would help us have that clear vision of Jesus to remind us of that truth. May we be disciplined, continuing steadfastly in prayer, not losing hope because of the scandalous exchange of the cross. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. You're so good to us when we don't deserve it, God. You continue to run to us in spite of our shame and our brokenness and our sinfulness, God, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And I pray you would help us have a clear vision of you. And in that, that would give us discipline to pray, to continue to come to you. And as we do, God, you would strengthen our faith muscles in you, who you are to live this life, to live it to the full. Thanks for your cross. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.